Have you heard of the musical Titanic? No. Have you seen the movie The Titanic? Yeah. Do you know who Celine Dion is? Of course. Of course. What do you mean? I'm just making sure. A... I don't want to assume we have the same cultural knowledge. Oh, my God. So there's a musical called Titanic the Musical in which Celine Dion hijacks the story of the Titanic. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, I went to see is it. Is it like camp? Oh, it's amazing. I mean, they literally have moments in the show where they're like, we know that everyone here is gay. But it was National Coming Out Day. I feel like I haven't been very good at celebrating the Jewish holidays this year, so I might as well be good at celebrating the gay holidays. Are there, like, are there multiple gay holidays? There's like Pride. Pride. National Coming Out Day. I mean, uh, all holidays are kind of gay, if we're being honest. Is there a holiday that's decidedly not gay? Thanksgiving isn't super gay. Thanksgiving? Cornucopias are gay. Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. I'm Nate Silver. And, and this, this is Model, Model Talk. Talk. There we go. We're all synced up and in studio. We have a little less than a month until election day. How are you feeling? Just planning my November itinerary. Yeah? Yeah. Where are you going to be? A little Florida, probably. Like late November or on election day? I mean, no, I'm... I'll be here in the ABC News building, hopefully on TV on election day. No, 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 no. There's like some good, there's like this sequence where you got like a poker tournament in Florida and then Art Basel, right? Oh my God, look at yeah, you. I don't yeah. even know if we can be friends anymore. You're, you're really like outdoing me in every way. On the topic of one month until election day, how accurate are the polls one month before election day, the midterm polls? Or predictive, I should say. I don't know if I have like a good soundbite for like what the exact number is. I mean, let's, you know, let's take a look at an example race, though. In Florida, the Democrat Val Demings trails incumbent Republican Marco Rubio by six percentage points. So let's see how that translates in the polls only forecast into an actual probability. The fundamentals think this race should not be that close. In the polls only forecast, Val Demings has a 20 percent chance. So you're down by five points, you have a 20% chance. That means the margin of error, which is supposed to span 95% of outcomes is actually much larger than, than five points, right? So, you know, so the polls are still not that precise and they never will be that precise, right? I mean, average but, polling error in national elections is four points. Is that how we should think about average polling error? The average polling error in the last three weeks of elections has been larger than that. Isn't it around like five points? It's also different for presidential elections and midterm elections, right? It's different for presidential elections and congressional races. Generally, the further you go down ballot, the more error there is in polling. Although recently, the presidential races have sucked so bad that like they're starting to catch up. All right. So I should say before we go any further that it is October 12th. Democrats have a 66% chance of keeping control of the Senate. Republicans have a 71% chance of winning the House. It looks like the long days of uh, inverse odds are over for now. I think these things can at times be noisy, but there's been about a five percentage point decrease in Democrats' odds in the Senate over the past month. Is that enough to say that we're seeing a trend in favor of Republicans now? Because I know you were somewhat hesitant. You were saying like, oh, it seems like the news cycle might be changing, but it's too soon to really say that the winds have shifted in terms of I, I don't know. To be, I mean, there's complicated things going on here, right? So let me make the following two assertions. Mm -hmm. Number one, I think things have gotten a little better for Republicans. Number two, I think the narrative has shifted more than is merited by the evidence. Maybe there's more than two things. Number three, to some extent, this is a tightening that like our deluxe model expected it's sort of priced in to the model wait but then shouldn't the model not move very much well it hasn't moved very much like 71 versus 66 is not really much of a shift in the house so it already thought the polls would tighten so therefore the odds aren't going to change much well yeah and okay number four this is not a presidential race i'm looking directly to camera there are different candidates on the ballot in 35 senate races and 435 congressional house races i should say right if there is some news development in Georgia or Pennsylvania, which are two newsy races lately, right, it does not necessarily affect the race in 
Arizona or Colorado or Oregon or whatever else. Mm -hmm. So you don't see nearly as much movement in congressional elections as you do in presidential elections where you have, number one, the same candidates on the ballot in every state. So everyone's on the same focal point. And number two, every presidential poll is informative of the state of that race. If Trump gains three points in a Georgia poll and a Texas poll, it probably tells you something about how he's doing in Florida too. That is not a safe assumption to make in a congressional race. So you're not going to have the kind of wham, bam, dramatic movement that you have in presidential races. About the most dramatic thing we saw was the Dobbs decision. Even that took a couple of months to get priced into our model. Maybe it should have been bigger, right? Or quicker. That's the kind of model building question. People's senses are miscalibrated. So in terms of understanding how the forecast works, and especially we haven't talked as much about the House because the Senate is easier to wrap your head around, right? There are four or five races that are really going to decide control of the chamber, whereas in the House, there's approximately, you know, 50 districts that are somewhere in the range of competitiveness. And so when folks, I've seen this because we've gotten questions from listeners, folks will go and look at their own district and say, I don't really understand why the forecast is quite like this. I don't understand what polling they're using, et cetera. For the House district forecasts, say in Pennsylvania, for example, Pennsylvania's seventh district is competitive. When a Senate race poll comes out in Pennsylvania, because there are a lot more of those than any House races in Pennsylvania, does it also affect the forecast in House districts? Like, in, no. In, no. no, it doesn't. In principle, it might be fine. We haven't tested that, so it's not. That's not an So how are we getting our sense of how candidates are doing in House races across the country? Because in the same way that in the Senate race, there's a different candidate in every state. In the House race, there's a different candidate in every single district. And we're not getting a lot of House polling. I mean, mostly you're using the fundamentals, right? So we have a partisan lean index. So 538 PLI with a generic ballot and add a couple of points for an incumbent and evaluate fundraising to some degree, right? And that's that's how it's mostly doing it. The polls in the House are few and far between. A lot of the polling in House races is partisan anyway, right? So we're relying on on tools apart from district polls. There are not as many. In 2018, the Upshot did a shit ton of district polls, which did very well. Unfortunately, the New York Times is not giving us all this free data anymore. Damn you, New York Times. And so we're left a little bit more to forecast based on on kind of fundamentals. Speaking of polls and accuracy in the final month of an election, Real Clear Politics, maybe their competitor of ours, has decided to do mm, something. Frenemy. Frenemy has decided to do something a little unique this year, which is for their Senate races, they are calculating the average error this far out in a particular state and then showing if you apply that average polling error to the current polling average what the results would be in that state so to give folks some sort of example currently in their polling average in pennsylvania john fetterman leads mehmet oz by 3.7 points. Fetterman's doing a little bit better in our polling average. It's more like six points in our polling average. But it will tell you that polls between 2016 and 2020 underestimated the GOP in the state by six points on average across those three elections. And it therefore, sort of in their mind, corrects the polling average to show that Oz is leading by two and a half points. We have a long history of talking about unskewing the polls on this podcast. And for folks who are maybe new or haven't been following us all the way back in 2016 when unskewing the polls became a really uh, popular thing, I think it becomes a popular thing in, in basically every election. I know that you don't like this, but can we talk a little bit about like why without just throwing RCP under the bus immediately? A few things. Number one, it's kind of faux empirical. In the sense of like, if you actually look at, is the polling bias in past elections predictive of polling bias in future elections? The answer is, historically, is basically no. Or at the very least, you'd want to regress it heavily. Maybe there's some positive correlation. So a six-point bias in past elections translates to one points, right? So that's part of it. It's just like, I think it's kind of like, I think it looks like it's being rigorous when it's just kind of... Not particularly. I mean, it's okay. an interesting thing to look at, right? Number two, I think they're kind of trying to like cover their asses and have it 
both ways a little bit. And hey, we have three forecasts, right? So you can say we're covering our asses too, but I think there's like, it's hard to do this shit. It takes a lot of thought. I just find it very kind of ad hoc. I mean, in general, and that's the third complaint, like RCP, I like some of the people there. They're a worthy site. I used to go on the site every day. and But like their whole process is ad hoc and it has been for years. And I think it's more likely that a process is biased when it's ad hoc. We can debate what the term bias means. It's hard to avoid bias. But the reason that you want to have a process that's rigorous and well-defined is process because you don't want to have to make well, judgment calls. What about, about this is ad hoc? Because it seems their standards for including outside. their standards for including polls are there's no standard, right? And it's frankly biased toward tending to include dubious conservative polls, but not include dubious liberal poll. So that is a critique of their polling average in general. But when it comes to this sort of unskewing feature that they have that will apply an average polling error over three elections to the average this time. Is that ad hoc? Because to me, I look at this and I'm like, oh, this is interesting information. I know the caveats. I know that polling error isn't predictable, although we are in this sort of period where people are beginning to question whether or not that's still the case. And to me, this is interesting well, this, but this is not this is not. So the New York Times will like publish a version of so hey, it's also stealing the idea of the New York Times. But like they would publish a thing where it's like if the polls were biased in the same direction, what would it look like? This is like the official RCP projection, right? Mm -hmm. If you go to their Senate map, they have Fetterman losing in Pennsylvania, not based on the current polls, not based on some prior, not based on even some subjective forecast, but based on the fact that that they are unskewing the polls. It's unskewing the polls, right? That's their official forecast, and and that's whatever. That's fine. I mean, we could bet on this, right? And would you bet against them? I would bet on the Democrats at 50-50. I mean, they have 52 Republican Senate seats. I'd bet on that. Yeah, for sure. I'm not allowed to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I have enough reputational risk on the line that wouldn't make sense to bet, but like, but it's kind of bullshit. Okay, so uh, bad use of polling? <laughs> it's a non-use of, well, okay, I guess it's, it's a use, of use of polling. No, it's like, it's just kind of, I don't know, man. I don't know, man. It's unskewing. We got a bunch of hot topics today. You ready for the next one? Yes. This has been a long time coming. We're going to talk about the Oregon governor's race. Oh, I, yeah. State's so, a long way away. Can I, I bring you of. back to the first model talk we did this cycle when yeah. I cited the odds in some of the governor's races and I mentioned Oregon and you were like, the f*** are you doing mentioning Oregon? Who cares about that? And I was like, hey, look. It, it's looking like it could be competitive. And you're like, yeah, whatever. I didn't Guess say that. I what? said I don't care about Oregon. I mean, Oregon's a lovely state. I have some family in Portland. Okay, now. I'm looking at our model right now, and it shows that Oregon's election for governor is a 50-50 toss-up between Christine Drazen and Tina Kotek. There's also an independent candidate running, which I think is why our forecast shows this as a 50-50 shot. So the independent is a Democrat turned independent who is running on sort of this idea that Democrats have lost their way on law and order and things like that, crime and homelessness in the state and so on. Are we factoring in the possibility that an independent could win in Oregon or what what are these 50-50 odds? Because it looks like there's yeah, no Yeah, we are giving her an explicit probability, which we estimate is less than one chance in 100. It probably is 0.5% or something, right? Mm -hmm. She's down by 18 points. Usually independents tend to fade down the stretch. And we've actually done a lot of modeling on independents. So this is like not, this is something we put a lot of effort into. And it's pretty improbable for her to, for her to win. She has to make up 18 points against two candidates which is harder than doing it against one, which would be hard enough. And again, people tend to abandon abandon independence down the stretch run if it looks like they're not a viable candidate. Okay, but then that would make me think maybe it's not a 50-50 proposition because if people are going to abandon this independent and this independent seems to be pulling more support from Democrats in a state like Oregon, wouldn't we expect Yeah, that would be, that would be a good reason to, to expect the Democrat to rise. Although let me, let's talk about Oregon, right? Yeah, let's talk about Oregon. There's also a bunch of competitive house races there, too. I mean, Oregon is a politically interesting state this cycle, regardless of how blue it may seem. It's kind of WWC. You know what that means? Yeah, white working class. I've been here for the past seven years. And eight. Yeah, pretty fucking white Oregon and not that wealthy. Although, obviously, you have, like, very liberal culture in Portland. But, like, Oregon is not 
inherently that different than Wisconsin. Okay, how about this comparison? Is Oregon to Republicans what Montana is to Democrats? Well, it's a counter, because in some ways, like, Montana's become, actually, has it become more, you know, I mean, there are parts of, I know, I mean, I would want to check migration patterns right in the West. It's interesting. It's a region where people tend to move around more than on the East Coast, for example. It's the frontier. You know, our... Californian conservatives who are tired of the state's high taxes and Gavin Newsom moving to Oregon, there's been a lot of outmigration from California. That could be a factor in some of these races, potentially. Potentially. Although, did you see the article on our website this week? Many Americans say they want to relocate for political reasons. Few actually do. I know we have some data from the pandemic showing that people were moving. Can I just make a comment about Gavin Newsom for being spicy, right? Oh, God. All right, go for it. How many people left California? Like 600,000 people left California or something? Uh Uh-huh. That's a really bad argument if you're trying to be president, right? People like literally left your state. I don't think anyone other than Twitter thinks that Gavin Newsom, Twitter and Gavin Newsom think he might be president, but literally no one else. On prediction markets, he is the the second or third most likely Democratic nominee. Well, it's because people who bet on prediction markets spend too much time on Twitter. I don't even think they're necessarily... Because he kind of caters to, like, he's the third most likely nominee after Biden and Harris. And not even that far behind. 9.4%. So, look, I think Newsom. And then Pete Buttigieg at 5.2%. I think Newsom has been smart as far as saying, F- it. I'm going to, like, defy convention and kind of start running a not so subtle at all 2024 campaign on the hopes that Biden doesn't run. Right. Now, he's doing that in a way that's talking about issues like crime and immigration that Raphael Warnock sure as f- doesn't want to talk about, right? But in a cynical way, in part because Newsom has like these fanboys among the resistance, it's kind of working. So I mean, you right, know. we're getting ahead of ourselves. It's okay. not even, we haven't even put 2022 in the books yet. We're already talking about 2024. I promise you the week after 2022, we're going to do our first, no, our second 2024 but Gavin Newsom primary is, is, is running for 2024 de facto in 2022 in a way that at the margin, probably hurts Democrats, right? So it's an issue pertinent to 2022. I mean, at the margin, sure, but like there's also a Republican who's running for president when in he was 2022 trying, when he who was might be to, hurting Republicans okay, more fa- than just at the margin. Fair enough. But when he's trying to like extend like the Ron DeSantis, Martha's Vineyard news cycle by like, let's have a national debate. It's like, you know, talk to any Democrat like running in a swing state or swing district. They probably don't think that's helpful. I'm going to point that out because I don't see people pointing that out. And it's like, it's kind of weird to run. I mean- you're making the argument that like politicians are kind of selfish, which I think a lot of people point out. Right. But right. You want deterrence. Again, I mean, you know, they're more well, selfish. They don't get called so out for we, selfishness. We covered this in our podcast series, The Primaries Project, which is that our system of government is designed to our system of parties, more specifically, is designed to encourage individual politicians to outshine their own party. And that's what people do. And in like a parliamentary system, in a system where parties have a lot more control and power and are able to do a lot more work in terms of selecting the kinds of candidates who run for office, people are more invested in the party and furthering the party's goals. But it's never really been the case that if you're an ambitious politician in America, you have to stick to the party line. Oftentimes, the most ambitious, successful people sort of run in ways against their own party. That's fair. I'm just saying like Gavin Newsom is running for 2024. He may or may not run in 2024, but he is running a national campaign trying to promote his national standing at a time when a Democrat is president um, I mean, but the and a Democrat is, from his state is vice president. In the interest of their own party, we would ha- well, one, politics would be different. I'm just saying and, people and are- the situation in particular amongst Republicans in this midterm cycle would be very different. I mean, saying, the only reason that Democrats, Democrats Republicans, have a and, two and three And neutral political reporters should like- understand that Gavin Newsom is running for 2024. All right, let's move on. We kind of started talking about Oregon, but we really got sidetracked there and talked about California. I think you just wanted to talk about California. Do we have more to say about Oregon? Great state, but like it wouldn't be that surprising if it became a little bit more purple. If it became a little more purple, how are you thinking about our 50-50 odds at this point for Oregon governor? I think the thing you mentioned earlier where the fact that this candidate is left-leaning the independent candidate and is more likely than not to lose ground. I think in the past we actually tried to model this and like actually try to predict if the independent candidate loses ground, 
how's that affect the rest of the race? I think we're not doing that in the current version of the model. But yeah, that's probably reason to, to lean, lean a little Democrat there. But it's close, right? I don't see any... Also, governor's races often are close. I mean, it's becoming less common to have ticket splitting, but like... Yeah. You know, you've had a Democratic governors in Kentucky and Louisiana and Republicans in, in Massachusetts and Maryland. And again, it's become less common, but like a Democrat that's seen as too far left in Oregon, that's not, that's not crazy to think that like in a gubernatorial race, in a way that wouldn't, wouldn't play out in the Senate race, that you'd have an issue there. So what you said there is quantifiable. And we actually have, I think, an article up on the website this week talking about how the ticket splitting between governor and senator has declined over the years. We can see that trend in the data. This cycle, it does seem like there are some pretty high profile splits. I think maybe the highest profile is in Georgia, but we're also seeing splits in Arizona, Pennsylvania. New Hampshire is a big one. New Hampshire is a big one to some extent in Wisconsin. There are the weird places, of course, where like there's a Democrat defending the governor's mansion in Kansas, but we would never expect a Democrat to win a Senate race in Kansas, I don't think. So is this out of the ordinary or defying trends, or is this still what we would expect? Ticket splitting has declined. Is it still declining? We will collect a, a data point this year. All right. Fair enough. I mean, there can be a bit more ticket splitting in midterms because, like, you know, there are more people who turn out for president than for other races. They may just turn out for president. Like, when you vote in New York, let's be honest, there's a bunch of shit you have to fill out, right? It's like, I don't give a shit about these judges or whatever. I, I'm sorry, in I'm fact, terrible. I'm, I'm, I feel like very uncivic for saying that, but like, I feel well, like I don't want I think more importantly, you can't really vote because they're not competitive. So I have a long running right. history of voting for people like Honey Boo Boo, mm -hmm. Mama June. I voted for all kinds. Of, I probably voted for you for one write-in position at some point in time. I, I appreciate that. But I just don't. I always write in an uncompetitive And then like the races. machine boops or something. Like, hey, do you know you have an undervote? It's like, yeah, I want to waste my time filling Wait, out. Wait, the machine boops? In some states, the machine boops at you if you undervote. Oh. I'm going to pledge from now on. I'm not going to vote. Direct to camera. I'm not going to vote from now on. For any offices that I haven't spent time actually understanding who the candidates are, I'm just going to undervote. And if the machine doesn't like it, well, that's not my problem. That's such rebel behavior, Nate. Mm. That makes you like a lot of Americans? No, people don't undervote enough. You think people spend too much time voting in races? That, because that's how politics and parties work. Understood. Parties combine a whole bunch of different culture, policy, information so that you can shorthand everything. Because... Most Americans don't give a shit about all the stuff that we're talking about. They're like too consumed with their daily lives, but they know that they prefer one party in general over the other. I mean, but it leads to some outcomes, right? I mean, it leads to things like people just fill in the names they like. So in Chicago, like if you have like a Irish name or like a Polish name, but right? that's they also how well. right, that's how politics works, right? Because a lot of it is culture and I'm identity just saying, don't, anyway. Let the people who take time to research local offices vote for those offices. And I'm here to say that if you want to use shorthand and partisan cues to vote for a Republican or Democrat, that doesn't make you in any way unique. And in fact, it probably <laughs> means that you have a more normal life because you're focused on the things that matter, like family, community, <laughs> faith, love, right. it takes television, time children. To fill in all the ovals. Going to Titanic the musical. The ovals take a while. Okay. <laughs> That's it with my questions for today. So next, you're going to have to do battle with our listeners, and I will try to um, defend their questions as best I can. So let's get to those listener questions. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. 
Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Nate, are you ready for some listener questions? I have to listen to them first. Our first question comes from someone who just identifies as a Virginia contrarian. Okay. The question is, how does the model factor in undecided voters? Does it assume that undecideds are likely to vote GOP based on historical midterm trends? Then someone follows up on this question because I posted it on Twitter so people can respond to each other. And they say, I would like to second this question. Candidates are often effectively tied in many polls, but with a significant percentage of undecideds. Many close races don't necessarily end up that way because of undecideds hurting behavior. Is the latter a variable in your model? So a couple things. When there are more undecideds, there's more uncertainty in the forecast. That's a pretty important principle. Does the model make assumptions about which way undecided break? Not the light version, which is just poll-based, but the fundamentals versions do, right? I mean, I think if it's a really red state and the race is tied, but the forecast is the Republican wins by five, that's kind of saying that they expect the undecideds to vote to break GOP. Okay. So it depends on the circumstance is what the answer is. I mean, the, the default is that you shouldn't try to predict how undecideds break, right? But if you have other information apart from polls, you kind of implicitly are. Is this what people talk about when they talk about momentum sometimes? Because do you remember in 2016 yeah. when part of the issue was that a lot of elite deciders broke for Trump in the final week or so of the campaign well, after the Comey letter? Yeah. So I know what to do with momentum, though, per se. But when news events happen late in the campaign, it can create a hurting effect amongst undecideds. Mm. I know we hate the word momentum. I guess I'm trying. I guess I'm just picking fights with you. I'm trying to come up with a defense I for know. momentum. No, I think that's not quite the right way. I mean, there, so where there can be momentum in that sense is in primary races, right? Mm. Where like the classic example I give is that if you're someone who preferred Elizabeth Warren to Bernie Sanders, but prefers both of them to like Joe Biden, if you begin to see Warren declining in the polls and Sanders rising, then you might say, I want to use my vote well, not for the candidate in third place, so I'm switching to Sanders, then that becomes self-perpetuating because the next person also sees Sanders gaining. So you can have those weird effects in mm. the primaries. In the general election, I think momentum is a term that you would probably be better off if you never used. All right, ban momentum. Band Hashtag momentum. ban momentum. Yeah. The next question is one that we've gotten a decent amount, but now that we're in the final month of the election, we'll come back to it. So basically, the way the forecast works is that generic ballot polling currently shows a one-point advantage for Democrats, but the forecast still thinks that this is ultimately going to end up at Republicans having a 2.6-point advantage in sort of like the national vote. And so the question is, how quickly will the forecast sort of correct to the current polling in these final four weeks if it doesn't get to our plus 2.6. So let's talk about the reasons for the 2.6, right? One reason for that gap is that Democrats have more abandoned districts where they're not running a candidate at all. Mm -hmm. That accounts for like something like one or 1.5 points of that gap. Some of the gap is also the generic ballot we show on the site, confusingly, we should probably fix this, is not the same as the one the model uses because the model builds on a likely voter adjustment. Mm. And the third reason is this gap between the prior and the current. So, yeah, I mean, the, if there is like one point of perceived shift toward the GOP, the model kind of tacks that on to the forecast for individual races. This seems like a slightly different question, which is like, 
does the polling average get more aggressive about adjusting new information later on in the race? The answer is, yeah, it does, right? A three-point shift later on in the race is more likely to be fully priced in. Also, you have more polls at the end of the race, right? So yeah. I think kind of what this person is asking in a way is if the election were tomorrow and Democrats had a one-point lead in the generic ballot average, what would the forecast say? Galen, do you know what happened to the nowcast? Yeah, you murdered it. Okay, yeah. There's a reason why the nowcast is dead, and this person's asking for a nowcast, and the nowcast... I mean, but this is model talk. We can do whatever we want. Oh, no, we can, no. We can be whoever we, we want. Can't we, can we can't the revive nowcast. the dead. We can't revive the dead. When's Halloween? Halloween's only two weeks Maybe away. Maybe on Halloween. On ho- for our Halloween episode of Model Talk, can we revive the uh, Nowcast? Someone should dress as the Nowcast, yeah. <laughs> Please, listeners, dress as the Nowcast for Halloween and send us a photo. And if you do that, we will, I don't know, we'll invite you on stage at our live show. It's like kind of a Nick Nolte vibe, I think. What? Am I dating myself? Maybe. Isn't he like always getting in trouble for being extremely, yeah. For dressing up as the Nowcast? No, this is like the Nowcast looks like Nick Nolte on a bender. <laughs> I don't know how rude this is because I don't honestly know who he is. Oh my god! Well, who is he? He's a f- actor. You don't know who Nick? I know, Nolte but what is? does he do? He was famous like back in like the nineties. Jeez, for what? For being in movies. He's an actor. Which movies? Okay, if he's so famous, name <laughs> one movie that he's been in. Well, I think he's like actually not been in movies lately because he's kind of okay. So he was in filmography. Do you know who this person is? Sophia. Oh know my who this person god! Is. Cape Fear. The Prince of Tides, Lorenzo's Oil. This is truly a who's who of movies I have never heard of in my life. Mulholland Falls, The Thin Red Line. You've heard of that, right? No. I've probably got some Oscar consideration. <laughs> what? Hotel Rwanda. Okay, yes, I have seen that. Huxley on Huxley. No. I'm, I'm not convinced I've that never this heard is of, a famous never person. Heard but I did see the picture that you pulled up when you Googled Nick Nolte on a bender. Blue chips. So I understand the reference 48 that you're hours. Making. North Dallas 40. And I respect that impulse that if someone is going to dress up as the Nowcast, they may well be on a bender. Next question. We're moving. The Nowcast lives in the moment, Caitlin. Yeah. Let's for today. YOLO. Yeah. YOLO. Next question. Is enthusiasm among voters factored into the model somehow? This is the point in elections where we get just a lot of questions that are like, is this in the model? So yeah, is enthusiasm amongst voters factored into the model? More specifically, they say, if polls show voters from one party are more enthusiastic to vote than voters from another party, does the model factor this in as an indicator of higher turnout from one party's voters? So the way the model works is it looks, it compares likely voter or registered voter polls. And if there's a gap, then it adjusts toward that gap. Also, it uses historical priors about the fact that the out party, meaning Republicans in this case, are usually more enthusiastic in the midterms. But it's a pollster's job to factor in enthusiasm, right? And you can also overfactor it. And one issue that polls sometimes have is that people who are more enthusiastic about voting are also more enthusiastic about responding to polls. I think Nate Cohn of the New York Times pointed out today that only 0.5% of their calls are being completed by the person they want to actually answer the phone. So probably someone who's really jazzed about politics is more likely to answer a poll. Have you ever been polled? Uh, sure. Yeah. In what race? It was some poll. It was not in a race. It was like some poll about like teenage like substance use. And I was like 18. They're like, can we speak to the 18 year old in the house? Yeah. And I beep booped booped the answers. Boop, boop touch tone they're like hello 18 year old nate silver do you smoke marijuana and you're like sure do no not no no i'm I'm not gonna answer that question okay oh okay okay you know that no answer means yes in this situation okay no it's not that's that's terrible polling practice well you know these days everyone's trying to unskew the polls anyway so i might as well join the herd okay (laughs) so i've never been polled at least not in never uh, in an election i got called by some, I think, either national or New York State survey asking me about health information. It was a super long survey. Do you know they have like the list of like circle 24 things that you've done? Have you hang glided? Have you gotten a tattoo? Have, have you, you been polled? Dip? Have you done marijuana? Have you been polled? You don't have the polled one circle? That's kind of sad. I don't. I don't. I have some other interesting ones circled, but okay, uh, not that. Okay. Ariel asks, which state has the most predictive power? That is, if you got to choose a single state for which you would get the full election results today, 
which would you pick to increase the certainty of the model the most? Well, we have this interactive where you can actually go through and see which states explore the ways. So let's look, let's look at the Senate. Let's look at well, I know oh, breaking, breaking news. Tipping point state. It's breaking Georgia. news. Yeah. Democrats have moved up in the forecast to now 67%. Ooh. Not 66. Well, it's kind of up because like, like if you knew that Republicans win the Senate race in Colorado, let's click on that. O'Day wins. They haven't. Oh my gosh, the model is 82% all of a chance sudden of winning the Senate. Jumped up to 82% because that would be such a singularly bad result, right? But the most informative in both directions is probably something like Georgia, like Georgia Nevada. or Nevada. I, I think, mean, I think, I think Nevada is actually, because like Nevada is like the most normal race on the ticket. Georgia, you can imagine Republicans having a bad year, or excuse me, Republicans having okay. a good year, but like just not being willing to close the deal for Herschel Walker because of all the baggage he brings. But Nevada I think is more still normal. want to know Georgia, because if Democrats win Georgia and Pennsylvania, they could still keep control of the House and lose Nevada. And so in that case, I would want to know Georgia. I want to Nevada. Also, the House races, are, I think, are more interesting in Nevada. Oh, we're saying that you would find out all of the results for... That's what I assumed in the question, yeah. I don't know that, that that was part of it. But maybe if that's the case, then yes, because there's like four districts there that are within the competitive range, right? Yeah. I mean, it could be some other state where you have a lot of... Var- you know, Pennsylvania has like variation in different House districts, so it might be that too. I mean, Pennsylvania really, I was just making this argument to a friend who lives in Pennsylvania and is doing political reporting out there. They really span the spectrum of American politics from east to west in Pennsylvania. It's the longest pencil in the world. (laughs) Have you heard that? Is that a common thing or is that like a my family thing? That's a your family thing. Pennsylvania is the longest pencil in the world? It's really long. If you have to, we used to drive through, I grew up in Michigan, my grandma lived in Westchester County, New York. You have to drive all the f***ing way through Pennsylvania. I've made that drive. I drove from Madison, Wisconsin to New York City in a U-Haul, and I stayed in, what is it called? State College? Is that where Penn State is? Yeah. I stayed in State College in a Best Western with no windows. No, I'm, sh- I'm shutting out to like the Clarion, Pennsylvania, There were Pennsylvania children running through the hallways like all night. It was like children Phillipsburg. Okay. So you choose Nevada. I choose Georgia. Next question. Can you provide a general ranking of information the model uses that has the biggest impact on a percentage basis to the model output? Things like polls, scandals, general ballot. How do these things compare with one another? And the answer is that it depends on the race that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, if you have robust polling in a race, then that is what the model defaults to, with the exception of the deluxe model also still kind of just a little bit based on what external forecasters say. Yeah, it's kind of like, Polls is the number one thing of that race. If you don't have polls of that race, you default to kind of like the generic ballot plus partisan lean index, right? Of the things next on the docket, fundraising is probably the thing thing that influences the model the most. Next question. This is from Tanner. Why are polls in deep red states like Nebraska, South Dakota, and Oklahoma showing that the governor races are competitive? And why is the model not really changing to reflect those polls? Slash when will it change? Well, partly, sometimes it happens, it's like, you will see a poll showing, like, the Democrat behind by, like, four points in one of these states. That just happened in South Dakota. It's actually not that great for the Democrat. The Democrat's behind in that poll. It's just one poll, right? Like, let's look at South Dakota. So, South Dakota. You have one poll showing the Republican ahead by four points. The prior is that the Republican wins by, like, 20 points. One poll showing the Republican actually winning isn't going to shift things that much. If you have multiple polls, it's a different issue. If you have a poll showing the Democrat leading by four points, it's a different issue, right? But, like, it's not really telling you that much. So the answer, which will be a surprise to longtime listeners, is that you have to wait for more data. It's also a registered voter poll, right? How many people, you know, 565 registered South Dakota voters from a polling outfit that has not released a lot of polls historically, right? It's good people are polling South Dakota, right? There's not a lot of confidence you can have in that data point to override the very strong prior you might have that in a Republican, well, maybe neutral year, that South Dakota is a very red state. This is something of an existential question from David, which I like. Why does it seem that the North Carolina Senate race has a lot less coverage than other competitive states? That's a great question. 
I think in part because North Carolina is seen as like a tease state where Democrats often get within a couple of points and lose. Because the polling there is very close. I mean, I think Sherry Beasley, the Democrat, is trailing Ted Budd, the Republican, by a half a point to a point currently. Yeah, and also the candidates aren't as interesting narratively as like Fetterman and Oz or Warnock and, and Walker. But no, I, I think people think North Carolina is like this fake. Fake battleground state? Yeah. But, you know, Cal Cunningham might have won if not if he could have gone back and not had an affair. Not had an affair, right? Another notch on the belt of scandals mattering. Hashtag scandals matter. You know, Kay Hagan was elected from North Carolina. Barack Obama won it once, I think, or once, was it twice? Only once. And barely, though. And barely. But, you know, I, in general, I think people, I think it's kind of superstition, right? Nevada was a state. I've said both Nevada and Nevada at this point. It's Nevada. Nevada is a state. I'm saying I like my own. Nevada. <laughs> I think it's Nevada. 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 Pennsylvania is a state that like was never going to go Republican until it did, right? Uh-huh. Arizona and Georgia were states that were considered tease states until until they weren't, and Democrats broke through, right? So like, so you're making the case we're paid more attention to North Carolina. Yeah, I think it's superstition, basically. So you call it a fake battleground state. What are other fake battleground states? And is Florida one now? I think Florida is unique because there is a lot of migration to Florida, and I think some of that is like politically motivated. I mean, people don't realize how weird Florida is, right? If you like describe the population of Florida, it's like a coastal state that's extremely racially mixed. But also extremely old. It doesn't matter that much. What do you mean? doesn't matter that much. Why not? In terms of how people vote? Yeah. Age is like kind of overrated as a factor. It matters to some degree. Like some reason mm. why... If you do a big regression analysis... There are pretty analysis, reliable patterns, aren't there? In that, like, okay, usually states that are racially diverse are pretty young, right? Okay, but also, younger people are much more likely to be college-educated and are much more likely to be non-white. And those things are more predictive. So once you account for those, that you have a college-educated, very racially mixed, younger generation, and an old, white, non-college, older generation, then... Age doesn't really account for that much. I mean, older white voters are pretty swingy. Like Maine and Florida are two of the oldest states that have lots of old white people in them. I'm telling you, and if you put in a big regression analysis, like age doesn't predict. Age doesn't much. matter. It matters some, but it's like overrated. Okay, go it's ahead. It's more. So, of, I still think that makes Florida unique. It's like a very racially diverse state that has a lot of old people in it, and like the old people are more it's not reliable the, it's voters not the, it's than not the, the younger voters. It's unique because people move to Florida in part because they're selecting for the politics in the same way they moved to Vermont. Vermont is a rural white working class evidence state. to back that up at this point? Because like, I know that people very publicly do that, you know, like conservative personalities during the pandemic were like, I'm moving to the free state of Florida. But when it comes to actual like regular people who don't have a platform or whose jobs aren't based on making political statements with their lives, like are those people also moving for political reasons? I think in like, increasing years, yeah. Jobs is a different thing. Like if you're moving for a job, that's common. You know, people move to Florida or Texas or Georgia all the time for jobs. I mean, people's, political views are so predictable based on their kind of other lifestyle characteristics anyway that like you wind up with a lot of migration that at least affects political trends but like people don't understand i agree with that that i fully agree with i think the whole like people are so partisan they're like moving to here or there or wherever based on their partisanship overstates americans partisanship people move to when they retire in particular they move to be in communities where they have other people to get along with they move for financial reasons so florida is a state where there's no state income tax for example i mean does that count as a political reason not having a state income tax yeah we did an interview on this podcast that showed that somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of americans are like your stereotypical partisan actors who like see the world through a partisan lens and would like talk about politics and the country in those terms and that like 80 to 85 percent of americans aren't really viewing politics that way okay so why is florida gone from but like you don't need 82 percent right right the 15 or 18 percent but would you agree with that analysis though in general that like to pretend that america is just split in two is overwrought and that like most people aren't really viewing politics and making decisions with their lives based on politics the way that pundits often talk about it I think the average pundit overrates how partisan people are, but I think people migrating is 
understudied and Florida is a case where I think people move to on the libs. All right. Well, when you have more data, bring it to me. The next question, we're down to the, the final questions here. This is a fun one. Dave asks, they all have pretty much the same odds. So how would you personally rank Barnes, Beasley, Ryan, and Oz in likelihood to win? That is Mandela Barnes, the Democratic Senate candidate in Wisconsin. That's Sherry Beasley, the Democratic Senate candidate in North Carolina. Tim Ryan, Democratic Senate candidate in Ohio. And Mehmet Oz, the Republican Senate candidate in Pennsylvania. Let me, let me uh, put some numbers in my spreadsheet here. There's a new poll that came out that was bad for Barnes, by the Ooh. way, so that affects things a little bit. As a former Wisconsinite, I wasn't buying that race. I'm going to go Oz. For likelihood of winning, Oz is number one. Beasley, Barnes. Ryan? Ryan. Ooh. Hmm. I, I want to come up with a reason to disagree with that. But maybe what's I'll actual, go what's Beasley the actual model? Oz. I think I'll go Beasley Oz. What's the what's the model actually say? I should probably look at that. No, the reason that they're asking this question is that they all approximately have the same odds of winning. So yeah. I mean, so really the empirical answer is this is unanswerable because they all have the same odds of winning. But I think it, I would go Beasley Oz Ryan Barnes. I mean, there is the Fetterman thing. It's a little it's a little spice for this late in the podcast. Which you think that people reacting to his seeming inability to answer questions that are asked vocally without the help of transcription, that people will see that and be like less inclined to vote for him. I mean, for a long time, the news cycle in Pennsylvania was about crudite in, in New Jersey. And now there is this fairly sustained focus on Fetterman, mm -hmm. including difficulties from his stroke, including maybe some of his positions on crime. You know, that seems like a shift that may not be fully priced into the yeah. polls yet. I think people are probably overdoing it. I mean, I think it's perfectly appropriate to look at a candidate's fitness for office. I mean, everything about that little news cycle last night I thought was kind of annoying. Like, on the one hand, I thought he seemed like he was, you know, actually doing fine in the interview, right? On the other hand, like, I totally disagree with any idea that, like, it's inappropriate for the media to be probative of this question. Yeah, I mean, I think, to your point, that this is oftentimes used for partisan purposes, that people will try to shut down conversation about fitness for office, whether it's Trump or Biden or Fetterman, by saying that it's like an inappropriate question. Like there should I've said this many times on this podcast. There should have been more open discussion about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's health, right? And I think the media was irresponsible well, not she, talk about it more. I mean, and yes, I may have had ultimately, at the them. end of the day, voters have no control over that. So, okay, are you sticking with, what was it, Oz, Beasley, Barnes, Ryan? Because you think there's upside for Oz that is yet unregistered in the polls in Pennsylvania. Uh, not a lot, but I think a little bit. According to the polling averages, I think, isn't Beasley currently doing the best, or is Ryan still leading in Ohio? Yeah, and polling average, Ryan, well, leads, quote-unquote, by 0.3 percentage points. I don't know. By just... the actual polling averages, then it's Ryan, Beasley, Barnes, Oz. But in fact, you're going Oz, Beasley, Barnes, Ryan. <laughs> Sounds like you're uh, doing battle <laughs> with the data. The you're unskewing polls. And we've come full circle. Final question from Bart. How often does 5 Fox call home to his mother, a lovable though neurotic chain-smoking fox who has a nice condo on Miami Beach? I mean, Fivey is a little estranged from his mom. What? Yeah. Fivey's not a family guy? He's not a mama's boy? You know, foxes are actually somewhat solo creatures. Mm. They're not that, super sociable. Is that sociable. why the fox symbolizes 538? A sort no, of individualistic curiosity? Maybe individualistic curiosity. Yeah. I mean, I think foxes are like our fox. Let me look at Google. Our well, foxes, the expression is like, be a fox, not a hedgehog, right? Like, first of all, what's the term? Okay, well, actually, according to LiveScience.com, foxes are very social creatures that live in packs. Wow. Wow. Okay. Sounds like data and evidence really uh, doing you dirty there. Look, Fivey had a rough upbringing, okay? I didn't want to admit it, but it's it's true. What well, now we so have contradictions. Unlike we the were relatives, foxes are not pack animals. 
wait, so we're getting conflicting signs. Foxes live in small groups or alone. See, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I thought foxes were kind of not super sociable. Why did Fivey have a rough upbringing? Look, I don't want to get too personal with Fivey, but like, you know, grew up in a den. What's it? What's it? You know, where do foxes live? In a den or a warren? That's not part of my okay. responsibility to know. Yeah. A fox hive? A fox hive. <laughs> like it's a hive. No, Fivey had some issues growing up. Yeah, he was kind of a nerdy fox and like. When the pollsters called 18 year old Fivey to ask Fivey about substance abuse. Okay. What were his answers? I mean, probably taking some catnip or whatever. Mm. Foxnip. Some foxnip? Yeah. We're entertaining ourselves too much with this. So you're saying Fivey Fox doesn't call his chain-smoking, neurotic fox mother in Miami Beach? I mean, the other thing is, like, Miami Beach is not a very hospitable place for foxes. It's outside of their range. Aren't you the one who put him there? No, Fivey, no, Fivey was in Vermont. Oh, Fivey in the forecast. Yeah. This is a really Fivey is very reluctant family. to travel to non-forested places. Mm, okay, makes sense. All right, well, before we go to housekeeping matters, one, as usual, we have a live show in Washington, D.C. on October 25th. Get your tickets. It's going to be fun. Also, we are hiring a freelance audio editor for the Politics Podcast. So if you want to come work with us, you can find that job posting on the 538 website. I've also posted it on my Twitter feed, and I'll drop it in the show notes as well. We're pretty fun to work with, right, Nate? I think we're fun to work with. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thank you. It's fun. It's fun, everybody. My name is Galen Druk. Sophia Leibowitz and Kevin Ryder are in the control room. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. He also yesterday welcomed a new baby into the world. So we're very excited for him. Congratulations, Chad, to you and your whole family. And Ellen Gineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcast at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.